Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Big, big earnings week really focus on technology. Some disappointments out there for sure, uh, although Apple kind of maybe saved the day a little bit at the, at the end here with some decent numbers. Let's kind of bring it all into perspective, tie it all together. We're going to roundtable it today with Cameron Kreiss, macro strategist uh, with Bloomberg News, plus Poonam Goyle. Senior e-commerce analyst uh, with Bloomberg Intelligence covers all things retail. Cameron, I want to start off with you here. Just you know, stepping back from the Microsofts, the the Googles, the Metas of the world, do you still consider, or should the market still consider, big tech as a driver, as a market leader for this global equity market? Well, I think you have to, just given the uh, the weighting in various indices. I mean, if you look at the S&P or even MSCI, All Country World Index, I mean, who do you have? It's, it's uh, <laughs> the familiar names, uh, uh, most of which are directly or tangentially technology-related. I mean, technically, Amazon is consumer discretionary these days, but I think we all know that they're valued uh, as, a, as a technology stock. So I think, of course, um, when you're talking about anything but very ephemeral short-term moves, you, you, have to, you have to consider uh, the tech sector as, as sort of the hegemonic driver almost. And when it comes to the tech sector, it's interesting. You look at Apple, uh, you look at Amazon, uh, two opposite reactions there. Uh, basically, Apple canceling out Amazon's loss on a points basis, if you look at the S&P 500. And Poonam, when you think about the Amazon earnings that we got and the wipeout that we're seeing in the stock, what do you think is the bigger issue here? Was it the warning about the holiday period, or is it what's happening in AWS? I think it's AWS more mm. so. We we know the holiday will be weaker than it has been just because of inventories being high and inflation curbing consumer spend. But on the AWS front, that was a surprise, um, really just at the big delta that we saw versus estimates, largely as, you know, they also said that they were exiting the quarter at a mid-20s run rate, which is pretty weak considering the 31% that they've been tracking for the past four quarters. Cameron, I'd love to get your sense here. We're you know, about halfway through earnings here. A any takeaways for you here? I mean, I know the big question for a lot of investors is, as they listen to some of these conference calls, is kind of the forward guidance and how bad will a recessionary environment be for some of these businesses? What, do, what, what, what have you learned so far? Yeah, I mean, the, there's, there's a, couple of, a couple of things to unpack. Uh, you know, there's the, the actual earnings we've seen relative to expectation, I mean, they've beaten, but they always beat, right? I mean, under-promise yeah. <laughs> and over-deliver is sort of the business model of Wall Street. Um, the magnitude of the surprise has been the, more or less the slowest um, on both the top and bottom line basis since the advent of COVID, so that probably tells us something. 
I, I, I do think that forward-looking uh, guidance is significant. Um, and I take what was uh, take on board what was said about AWS. But the fact is, is that Amazon's guidance uh, for the fourth quarter puts its overall year-on-year revenue growth uh, the second lowest in, in the company's history. Uh, at less than 5% if you take the midpoint of the guidance range. Um, that's less than inflation. Um, and that's pretty significant because we're, you, these companies at the top of the pyramid have valuations that are consistent with secular growth. And I think what Amazon and Meta in particular uh, are saying is that these companies are actually significantly exposed to cyclical vulnerability. And the question we have to ask is, should these companies have a secular valuation premium if they're turning into more secularly, cyclically uh, vulnerable uh, companies? I think that you can make a good argument that, that no, they're, they, there's some of this premium that uh, has been given to these firms over the last 10 years uh, maybe should, should be withdrawn. Well, there's some key differences between Meta and Amazon, one of them being that Meta is just funneling billions of dollars into the metaverse. I am so excited to see how that turns out. Amazon, on the other hand, Poonam, is really looking at cutting costs here. What magnitude are we talking about and where? Sure. The costs are largely going to be cut on the retail side. Um, really, when you look at technology as well as investments in fulfillment, logistics, transportation. So we heard from them that they were expected to cut a billion and a half, $1.5 billion from 2Q to 3Q. They only cut $1 billion, largely because they couldn't cut the costs and their productivity due to fulfilling demand for the additional prime day sales and early access sales that they had in 3Q and 4Q. Um, it's going to be hard for them to cut costs. It will not come easy. They're going to have to look at some of their strategic initiatives as well as some of those experimental initiatives that they have to really um, expand those margins. But at the end of the day, the margins are driven by AWS. More than 70% of the margins on an annual basis, or the profits, I should say, come from AWS. And in the latest quarter, 3Q, it was over 100%. So we need to see those AWS margins expand again. And we think they will. It'll just be a matter of time. The next few quarters are challenging. But AWS does have potential to expand again, both from a revenue and a margin standpoint. All right, Poonam, great stuff as always. Poonam Goyle, she's a senior retail analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, covering all the e-commerce uh, stuff as well. She's been there since the beginning of that evolution in retail. Plus, Cameron Kreiss, macro strategist with Bloomberg News, giving us kind of just a holistic view of here of what we've seen from these tech earnings. Um, some disappointments uh, kind of across the board, maybe the exception of Apple, but according to Cameron, no reason to think that they will no longer be uh, market leaders, uh, just given their propensity, their big size in the indexes. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.
Ted Oakley, he's a founder, managing partner of Oxbow Advisors. We've talked to him for a long time. He's down in Austin, Texas, um, but we've got him in our studio today for the first time ever. How cool is that? Ted, thanks so much for joining us here. Um, you know, I, I don't know. We've, we're coming through earnings here. I got a market that's down 20%. My fixed income portfolio is down double digits. What do I do from here? Is this the bottom? Can I start just loading in some stocks and bonds here? Well, I would say, Paul, I would not do that. Okay. No, I think uh, I think what what the Fed has given you is a little buy time with the one one year and maybe eighteen month Treasury at four and a half percent. Now you can afford to uh, hold it. Uh, you know, and somebody tells me now, hey, I can get a five percent dividend on something. I said, wait a minute, how about four and a half on a Treasury with no right. risk on it? And so I, I think that's what's going on. But I wouldn't step into that. We really feel like this has probably two or three quarters to go, maybe a little longer. Well, explain that timeline. What's going to happen in these two to three quarters? Are you waiting for the Federal Reserve to take their foot off the gas a little bit? Well, Katie, they could, but I think people, if they look at history, it always goes to show the market keeps on going down. But here's why for us. We think that earnings, if you look at deceleration, they're up, but it's been really decelerating now for four quarters in a row. We think that's going to continue into negative territory over the next three quarters. And as that happens, I think people have to readjust the level of what they're willing to pay for stocks. You know, they talk about multiples. Well, the multiple's going, going to go up because your earnings are going to go down. I think they forget to factor that in here. All right, Ted, you're from Texas. Texas Tech was your undergrad. I'm just going to profile you, Ted, and assume <laughs> that you have a call on oil, on energy. I got WTI crude oil, about $88 a barrel here. What's your call on oil, and what's what are the, your? I know you're good friends when you're sitting around chatting down in Texas. You're talking oil. What's the call there? Well, you know, uh, oil companies can make money at 88. I yeah. mean, they can make money at 80. So, you know, we own uh, energy one production companies on pipelines, that sort of thing too. But what's happening is, you know, the large uh, companies really have cut so far back on capex that. It's changed the industry, and it has helped the independents quite a bit, I think, to do more. But for us, if you just look out over the next two years, we think it, it, it moves higher over time. Um, you know, we're, we're getting to a point where supply-demand is, is fairly equal. Okay. So, uh, and I understand it. And by the way, I'm all for taking care of the, you know, the environment, green. I'm, I really am. I just think the timeline's off I agree. a bit. Yeah, I'm with you. We need you know? the oil. So that's that's that where guess. I think so I think it, it, it does go higher. The only thing would, would thwart it in the short run, which we think could happen, by the way, is if your economy's slow enough mm -hmm. all over the world, there will be a short period in there, three to six months where oil can, can fall back some. We'll see. And if we think about the energy sector, for so long it was winning by so much. When you translate that oil call into the stock market, has the uh, energy trade run its course? You know, Katie probably has to a degree. I think you're you're onto something there. I think a lot of people really focused on it. And they were too, they had too much oil in their portfolios, particularly on the professional side. And what's happening? If you look at the companies, they've sort of been trading those highs now for you know they had a high they fell off came back but they haven't made significant new highs here and so i think you i think you you could be very right on that hey ted you've uh, you've had a heck of a career here uh founding uh oxbow advisors 
you've written nine books. Mm-hmm. You're also the chairman emeritus and founder of Foster Angels of South Texas, the largest foster child foundation in South Texas. Talk to us about that. How's the How's the environment down there as it relates to foster care and things like that? Because there's always so much discussion we hear in New York. We hear about the border and all those types of things. What's it really like feet, uh, boots on the ground in South Texas? Well, we have two. The two foundations are both the same side. They're two separate foundations. We also did uh, Foster Angels of Central Texas, which is out of Austin. So between the two, we cover about 65 counties in Texas. And But, you know, having done that and really helped foster children for 25 years, well, our problem is uh, is that since they're wards of the state, foster children are unfortunately out of sight. And so you, you, you can't get people to understand really the plight of a foster child. And what we do at Foster Angels is we try to give them things very quickly within 48 hours mm-hmm. that will help their self-esteem if they want something. But the problem in the state, to answer your question, is – we have a lot of people who don't understand the system. Yep. They don't pay the people in the system, the CPS, any money. They have about a 40% turnover rate, if you can right. imagine. And so uh, everything compounds on itself. And so you have the problem with uh, foster families. We don't have near enough. Right. And the part of the ones we do have are actually not that good. We have yep. a lot of great ones, don't get me wrong. But a lot of them just do it for the money. And then you have a lot of CPS workers that it's a tough job and it's just a turnover. We have those two things going on. Then they've had a lawsuit from uh, that. uh, I I don't agree with it necessarily, but uh, what's happened is it's really put a lot of pressure on the system because they're having to respond to a lawsuit instead of helping, (laughs) instead of helping children. So it sounds like a lot of uh, red tape like we we have here and you have in Texas. Oh yeah. And every state. And I'm very familiar with the New York's, Florida's, all the big states, right? California. We all have the same problem. You have the same problem here too. All right. Well, we appreciate you doing all, anything you can do to help there. That that's great stuff. Ted Oakley, founder, managing partner, Oxbow Advisors. I want to get to right to our next guest because she is in studio. So that's two guests in a row in studio. These are folks that we've talked to before, but we have them in the studio, also, which is so cool. it's a Friday. It's a Friday. Who yeah. Worked? There's no Bloomberg employees here today, <laughs> but other folks are coming in. Allison uh, Reitenauer, CEO of 7th Generation, joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Allison, thanks so much for joining us. Tell us, just give us the overview of what 7th Generation is. What are you guys up to? Yeah, first, thank you so much for having me. It's great to see you all. Yeah, and a little bit about 7th Generation. So we are a household cleaning company that focuses on our mission of transforming the world into a healthy, sustainable, and equitable place for the next seven generations. Wow. So, yeah, like no small goals for us. (laughs) So give us a sense of kind of like some of your products, who you do business with, how you get your products out there in the marketplace. Yeah, great. So I think you will likely see us walking down any grocery store aisle, Target aisle, on Amazon.com, Walmart aisle, in the categories of laundry detergent, household cleaners, and dish products. And so um, we really have distribution in you know most um, everyday stores. Um, and so we are, we're really part of everyone's households. 
This is Bloomberg Radio, so I have to ask you about the supply chain. Uh, it's all we've been talking about for two years. Tell us how the past two years have been for you in terms of managing that. Oh my goodness, it has been a wild ride. So um, we are we do operate in the categories of cleaning and paper products. So you know over the course of 2020, we saw record growth um, behind those products and record inability to meet the demand of both our retailers and our consumers. And so that was a pretty wild ride for us to just really make sure that we could deliver on what consumers and retailers were asking us for. Um, and then on the other side of it, I think it has been a combination of both figuring out how consumers are going to be cleaning um, in today's world, and then also making sure that we have a supply chain that is future fit for this type of volatility. Because I will tell you that even today, while the demand is not as high as it was in 2020, I think we're still working on um, backtracking a lot of the supply chain decisions and, and retrofitting our supply chain to make sure that we can can meet the day-to-day -day demands. So how did your business and how did the demand for your products kind of evolve during the pandemic? Because it seemed like for a while there, we were cleaning everything, including the groceries we brought home from the supermarket. And then leave them outside. And, oh, yes. I was oh, talking about God. that the other yeah, day. Yeah, think about that. <laughs> God, what we didn't know, uh, amazing. But anyway, here we are. How did that impact your business? Yeah, sure. So I think like, like our... Um, our peers in the category, I think we just saw unprecedented demand for anything that cleans. And so we do operate in the disinfecting cleaning category. So we do create a line of products that are um, that kill 99.9% .9 of germs. And so we really saw that range of products um, flying off the shelves as soon as literally as soon as they were set. Yep. Um, so, you know, it was really it was really challenging for us to track how high is high. And bring us to now and bring us into the future. You know, you mentioned how people clean have has changed. How are you adapting to that and what trends have you noticed? Yeah, so there's there's kind of two big things that are emerging in our business right now. So one, I think um, consumers, first of all, are still sitting on quite a bit of product that they bought in 2020. And so I think okay. um, we're still working through the tail end of product on hand. Um, they're also thinking about cleaning differently. I think the role of efficacy in what is clean has become much more pre prevalent given our conversations around germs and safety, even past COVID, right? So I think there's a lot of things happening in the news now from a health perspective. Um, this on top of the fact that we are a sustainable business, right? So we really focus on the environmental aspect of the products that we make. And the challenging thing right now is that there's some very real concerns for the U.S. consumer between financial insecurity, um, inflation, mm -hmm. war, health and safety. And so we are seeing the environment slip a little bit from what's top of mind for consumers in their day to day. And yep. so we've really had to pivot, right? So I think one of the things that we're working on as a team is how do we make sure our communication is super sharp from an efficacy perspective? So we work as well as our conventional counterparts. So how do we make that point really clear? And then also, how do we dial up the urgency around the environmental concerns? Like the earth is burning, we must do something yep. about it. And so how can we just make sure that stays top of mind? You mentioned inflation. Uh, it seems like we just, we're getting through a big earnings cycle here. We're hearing from a lot of companies report earnings and their inflation is right there. How has it impacted your business? 
Yeah, so I think we certainly have not been immune to a lot of the challenges that most companies are facing in terms of rising costs for materials. And so we, like the categories, have had to adjust our pricing. Um, but the one thing that I'm super proud to talk about is the fact that you know where we make our biggest investment is in our product. So we use a as much as plant-based materials as we can, up to 100% in most of our products. We also focus on using as much better plastic as we can. So okay. we use 100% post-consumer recycled plastic in our packaging. Um, and so those are expensive, right? They were expensive before the pandemic, yep. right? It's a quality that we're investment that we're making. And so the thing that we've had to really work for is how do we make sure that we maintain committed to that quality of ingredient, to that quality of environmental standard, and make adjustments around that. Um, so I think we've really focused as a team to say we have to keep the quality of the product intact during this time. To what degree have you passed on those higher costs? How much have you raised prices? Yeah, so it really does vary by category, right? So I think um, it depends on the sub-segment that you're looking at, but I think we do our absolute best to minimize the amount that we pass on. But at the end of the day, I need to make sure that this financial model continues to make sense. So um, as a company, we have certainly made it our priority to ensure that sustainable products maintain as much accessibility from a price point as possible. So one of our biggest priorities is dispelling the myth that natural products have to be more expensive. Right. Um, so as a business, we always work to make sure that we keep our pricing as accessible as we can. But I think that you know, that's really been tested during these times. Are you based in Burlington, Vermont? We are. And every company that we talked to for the last, boy, two and a half years, cite labor as a challenge. What's it like in Burlington, Vermont, and the other places maybe where you operate? Yeah, great. So I think, um, you know, actually one of the biggest changes that we've made from a working perspective um, as well, our headquarters is based in Burlington, Vermont. We're really opening up a wide net of remote working for our company. Okay. So we're casting a wide net to make sure that we get, you know, the most amazing talent into our company, no longer letting our headquarter location dictate that. And so it's actually been a great way for us to really rethink talent strategy. How many employees do you have? Uh, we've got about 100. Okay. Um, but remember, we are um, owned by Unilever, so I think mm. there's a yep. much larger ecosystem that supports <laughs> us. So um, I like gotcha. to think that there's millions of people out <laughs> okay. there working for us. That's great stuff. <laughs> All right. Allison, thank you so much for joining us. Allison Rittenauer, CEO of 7th Generation, joining us live in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, which we appreciate making a trip down from Burlington to New York, home of the University of Vermont Catamounts. How about that? My, knowledge is, my that. knowledge is just all over the Vast place. Worthless, worthless trivia. I've got it. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. It's a big oil companies reporting um, some numbers. And boy, when those guys make money, they make a lot of oh, money. Oh, time. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, so when we talk big energy, when we talk big oil, we talk to Fernando Valle. He's a senior oil and gas analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Another 
guest of ours in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I don't know what's going on today. I think we're being punked. I, are we giving something out at the door or something? I, to the, get people? We haven't gotten it. I know. So I didn't get it either. You didn't so get I'm anything. waiting for my goodie bag. <laughs> Fernando, talk to us about Chevron. Talk to us about Exxon. I mean, I got to assume at 88 bucks a barrel, they're making some money here. Yeah, and uh, they actually made some money because there's a catch-up. Usually contracts for LNG, liquefied natural gas, lag anywhere between three to six months. So they're really getting into that peak of the oil price from the second uh, quarter okay. on the LNG side. And that's probably going to last until for the fourth quarter. And just as a reminder, Qatar Gas uh, is Exxon's best asset by far. It, points, it, it contributes as much as 20% of net income. So they're very exposed to that. And that explains the record profits in third, the third quarter. Okay, so the, the superlatives here are pretty amazing. Exxon, highest profit in its 152-year history. Is that right? Yeah, I'm reading a Bloomberg wow. news story right in front of me. Chevron, almost, almost, second best quarterly result uh, ever. I'm going to be pessimistic. When, when does the boom times end? This can't last forever. Well, it can't, but it can get worse, actually, before it gets better. I think in the short term, you're correct. There might be some uh, weakness we saw, obviously, at, towards the end of the, the third quarter and start now the fourth quarter, weakness in oil prices. Uh, but then refining margins have taken off again, especially led by diesel. Uh, we, we have an article out talking about how diesel shortages are going to be crippling to the East Coast, and, uh, and that will benefit a lot of the refiners. Um, and, and their margins are going to continue to creep higher in the fourth quarter and we think into the first quarter. But even if we go to a little bit lower and we, we are about uh, nine to 10% down from the highs in the second quarter for Brent, uh, we still think they generate uh, significant excess cash flow. And the, the cash balance for Exxon now is at $30 billion. And we think in, even if it's a little bit lower, they still have to find a home for those uh, dollars because their net debt is almost to net cash. So, I mean, I'm just looking at Chevron. Uh, Chevron, U.S. equity. Then I go FA function, financial analysis. I mean, $12 billion of cash, $26 billion of debt. You know, over the next couple of years, $35 billion in free cash flow each year. Why aren't these guys doing two things? Drilling more holes in the ground for more supply and building more refineries so we don't have those diesel shortages in the Northeast. Not that I drive a diesel vehicle. That's Matt Miller's game. But... Are they investing back into their businesses? Well, but you do eat food that takes that diesel and yes. you buy from Amazon who uses that diesel okay. as well. So, okay. so it's it important for you as well. Uh, well, refineries are just uh, impossible to build in the US in the current environmental climate and regulatory climate. Payback is very long and you need to have some assurances that you're actually going to be able to continue producing for 15 to 30 years. And uh, we're just not there today. Uh, so we don't expect those to be built um, in the Middle East and Asia, really, where we're seeing new okay. refinery capacity. On the, on the upstream side, we agree, and we think 2023 will mark yet another increase in spending from these guys. Uh, we haven't seen a lot of exploration. We think exploration will come back strong from 2023 on. Deepwater, Exxon uh, made more discoveries out in Guyana, which is a burgeoning uh, oil province there for them. Have you ever been out on an oil rig? Uh, yeah, I've been to a couple in Brazil back cool in the day. It? It's well, pretty it's, cool. Because yeah, you're out in the middle of nowhere on this yeah. rig, I, I've and they're been, just drilling, right? 
offshore and I've been uh, in the I've been in the middle of the Amazon as well on an onshore rig in the middle of the, See, the Amazon that's rainforest. That's what I need to do. I don't think I would love that. <laughs> Maybe oh, in the Amazon. I don't. I would take a helicopter be. out to an offshore. Okay. Climbing awesome. the stairs on the side of a boat in mm. in the water is pretty interesting. You have to climb <laughs> with your hands. It's oh uh, my god, <laughs> I would probably panic. <laughs> is peak oil? Is that still a thing? I, I don't. We used to talk about it two or three, four years ago. Yeah. I, I think we need more oil, don't we? Well, that's our belief, and you know, contrary, to, contrary to the International Energy Agency's forecast, we think we're still going to, to to higher levels over the next several years. If you look at emerging markets, they're the main drivers of oil demand growth, uh, and we haven't really uh, found a solution for their grid issues, for their consumption, and uh, in order for them to improve their quality of life, they need to consume more energy. And right now, uh, that has to be uh, fossil fuels. There, are, the alternatives aren't enough to sustain uh, an improvement in life for 5 billion people. Ken, let me ask you a question. Can the world exist without Russian energy? Yes, but not without Russian energy and without seeing growth from other regions. We have a lot of resources in Canada. We have a lot of resources in Venezuela. We have a lot of resources in the US, but they need to be developed. Can the world exist this winter without Russian energy? <laughs> Good point. Yes, but curtailing a lot of industrial activity. So you're going to have to prioritize safety over uh, the economy. And I think that's what Europe has already done. That's how we got to 93% inventory pill was by curtailing economic activity. OPEC plus, uh, how powerful is it today relative to maybe the past? I think especially Saudi and the UAE are extremely power, powerful and they know uh, they know that, uh, and their comments around Saudi first are really uh, indicative of that. Um, we have given them some of the, that power by moving offshoring energy production and energy security. So I think it, it behooves us to take some of that back and, and really look at, at uh, North America as a source of clean energy because it can be decarbon, uh, decarbonized and improved, and uh, we have this, some of the more strict environmental rules compared to other energy producers out there. All right, good stuff as always. Well, I, I could talk energy all day. It's just like it's a global issue. It's a geopolitical issue. It's just our good friends down in Texas and Oklahoma issue. Uh, lots of stuff there. So Fernando Valle, he does that for us. Uh, he gets paid to do that for us, believe it or not, climbing up on ships and going out to oil rigs in the middle of the ocean. I mean, who knows? But he does that for Bloomberg Intelligence, and we appreciate it. Again, WTI crude oil, uh, it's off a little bit today, 1.3%, just under $88 a barrel. This is a treat for me, folks. Felix Gillette is in our studio, and Katie, another in-studio guest. Something's this in the water today. I know. I don't know. It's crazy. Everybody's coming into the studio. They want to be in lunch. our presence, I guess. Yeah, it might be the, the last lunch here at Bloomberg uh, ever. So Felix <laughs> Gillette, editor for Bloomberg News. Um, he's also the editor of the Bloomberg Entertainment Vertical Screen Time. You can find that on Bloomberg.com. But he's got a big take story, and we love the big take stories. And this one's really right down my alley, so I turned to it right away on the train coming in, talking about HBO and Netflix. And it's really goes to the HBO story because um, Phyllis has got a new book out. It's coming out in just days. It's called It's Not TV, The Spectacular Rise, Revolution, and Future of HBO, which I cannot uh, wait to read because I was there kind of ground zero during all that stuff at Time Warner, really cool stuff. So Felix, thanks so much for coming in our studio yeah, here. My pleasure. Talk to us about kind of what you found in your deep reporting of the history of HBO. 
Yeah, I mean, it's 50 years, incredible impact that HBO has had on uh, TV, revolutionized comedy, drama, documentaries. Um, and uh, this is this piece for The Big Take was, you know, the first excerpt from the book. Uh, you know, HBO was the protagonist of our book, but uh, we really kind of developed Netflix as the antagonist because I think there's such fascinating parallels and contrasts between these two companies. Um, and, you know, we really dug into that also. Um, and this is this fo excerpt focuses really on 2010, 2011, during the time when they went from being, you know, copacetic business partners in the DVD oh, right. era to suddenly during the switch to streaming, all of a sudden realizing we're going to be huge, intense rivals. Yep. Who would you say is winning to ask a very simple question? I think Netflix has a huge head start, especially if you look overseas. I mean, one interesting thing about HBO is for all the incredible branding that they've done with HBO over the years, where everything was about the HBO brand, premium cable, you know, you're paying extra for this, um, all the shows feeding into that. Uh, you know, overseas, they did kind of the opposite. So, um, you know, overseas, it was all about profit margins and licensing their shows to other networks. So the HBO brand does not actually have a huge amount of resonance outside the United States. And now as the global, you know, the streaming wars are going global, I think that's where you see Netflix having this incredible advantage. You know, I think about the early days of HBO, and it was just so revolutionary what Jeff Bukas did there because... Big budgets, okay, for theatrical film, I get it. Mm -hmm. And you get a certain quality of that. Yep. You don't get that on TV. You no. didn't get that on cable. Yeah. But all of a sudden, they put serious money behind some of these uh, series. And I, I just watched for the first time after 20 years, The Wire. Yep. And that was really the series that changed the entire ballgame, what could be on the small screen. Yeah. I mean, they made a big switch in the mid-90s where, you know, the early HBO series were very cheap looking. Yep. You know, if you go back and look at Tanner 88 or even Larry Sanders, which is an incredible show, but they didn't put a lot of money on the screen. Then it was, uh, you know, From the Earth to the Moon, which was a miniseries Tom Hanks and Brian Grazer were doing. They said, you know, if you're going to do this miniseries on HBO it has to have real special effects. You guys cannot cheap out. And so, uh, yeah, Jeff Bukas at the time as CEO said, you know what, we are going to put a huge amount of money in here. We're going to move to a more theatrical model where we'll spend a lot of money up front and then we'll figure out ways to try and monetize on the back end. And as it happened, that was also the period of time where DirecTV was coming in to play. Uh, yeah. They were getting an extra money from DirecTV and also DVDs were also hitting. And it turns out that those series that they created in the late 90s and early 2000s, Sex and the City, The oh, Sopranos, right. yep. Six Feet Under, The Wire, incredible series, an incredible run they had. And not only did that pull in a lot of subscribers, they could also take those shows and they remember those box sets they used to make, those yeah. DVD box sets? Those things were like pure gold. You know, to buy yep. like one season of The Sopranos was like $100 or something. It was absurd, but it was a great extra revenue stream that they could just continue to plow into making their shows look, you know, more like theatrical uh, productions than anything else on TV. I got to say, I haven't seen The Wire yet. I need to. Gotta you know. do. I, I, I again, I, I just, it was a 20th year anniversary, and I said, boy, I've always said to myself, I need to watch that. So I started, you can now 
stream it, binge it, all the stuff the kids do, and it was awesome. Yeah, yeah, I have seen The Sopranos, I will say that. But Felix, so the big take today, it's an excerpt from your book, which is coming out next week, yes, I believe. November on 1st, Tuesday. November 1st, sorry, Good. right after Halloween. So the the I was going to say headline, the title of your book, it's yes. not TV, it's a spectacular rise, revolution, and future of HBO. Let's talk about the future. Yep. What does it look like? It looks pretty good right now. I think that, um, you know, three years ago when we started the book and AT&T was taking Ooh, control slow of writer. Warner Media. Very slow. Very <laughs> classic magazine writer. you got to take uh, your time. Yeah. Uh, it looked, you know, people were saying, oh, is this, is this going to be the end of HBO? What's going to happen? Um, HBO has had an incredible strong 2001, 2022. You think about, you know, The White Lotus, uh, Succession, Mayor of Easton. Um, and just this year with uh, the Game of Thrones sequel, House of the Dragon, which has probably been the biggest thing in TV uh, for the Haven't past couple months, it. they're doing great. You know, Discovery has come in, AT&T spun, spun off Warner Media. They have new owners with Discovery. I think David Zaslav is a big supporter of the yep. brand. Um, so actually, HBO is doing great. And the method that they kind of perfected back in the 80, you know, late 80s, 90s, 2000s, Still very powerful. Still a great way of doing television. But there's a lot of competition. Like I used to think, you know, the, the story was in Hollywood. If you really want to do something really high quality, yeah, you go to HBO. Yeah. Now I've got Ted Sarandos and Netflix writing huge checks. Yep. I've got lots of other. I got Amazon. Amazon Apple. Apple. So yeah, Paramount. How do they adapt? I guess. They've had to adjust because in, you're right. In the old days, they could outspend everybody. If yeah. they wanted a project, they just, you know, we have this thing in the book called the HBO Shrug, which was like, <laughs> you know, eh, we were going to pay $80 million for Band of Brothers. Eh, we'll spend $100 million. That's eh, fine. Right. And they didn't have to worry about it. And that was a huge advantage. I think they've adjusted in recent years because really when Netflix came along and got into programming in a big way over the past decade, they kind of stole that position in the marketplace from HBO because, you know, the paradigm of tech investing, it's been all about growth. It hasn't yeah. been about profits. And that positioned Netflix to really do the same thing to HBO that HBO used to do to everybody right. else, right. which was like, you know, in, in the excerpt, uh, in the big take, we talk about Netflix swooping in and uh, buying House of Cards, which right. was like their first big yep. bet on yep. original programming. They offered $100 million, two seasons without seeing a pilot. Yep. It's crazy stuff. It's yeah. fun stuff. This is going to be a great book. Felix Gillette, editor, Bloomberg News. Uh, he's got a, a new book coming out next week, which I'm going to buy. I'm not going to take one of the ones they have around here. It's, it's entitled It's Not TV, The Spectacular Rise, Revolution, and Future of HBO. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.